Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 20, Butterflies Aren't Free, with special guest appearance by Sheila Scoba Banning as Carolyn Stockwell. I drove Levin to his office in my car to minimize any chance of him slipping away. He sulked quietly on the ride over, huddled in a malevolent ball as far away from me as possible on the big bench seat of the galaxy. By the time we got to his office, though, He'd gotten his courage back and refused to get out of the car. He threatened to report me to the police and demanded to be driven home immediately. I sighed in a bored way and said, You can get out and walk home if you like. But in addition to everything else I promised, I'm going straight back to your house to give your wife a copy of every single email you sent to Carolyn, along with a full explanation of what you've been up to. I paused to rub my chin. In fact, if you're not going to give me the files, maybe you should just check into a hotel. You won't be getting much of a welcome at home after your wife gets the news. Levin caved in completely after that. He let me into the building and unlocked the door to his office, where I liberated a fat file on Carolyn and about a half dozen audio cassette tapes. When I asked him whether Carolyn knew that he'd taped their sessions, he coughed in a self-important way and mumbled something about standard practice. The last I saw of him was a look of squinted hatred that seemed to hang in the evening air long after his taxi had pulled away. I walked back to the galaxy to thumb through the file, and I realized he had been right about one thing. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. There were weekly entries going back nine months. They were handwritten in a sort of abbreviated shorthand that was illegible and full of jargon and abbreviations that made no sense to me. I was running through my mental Rolodex to locate someone I knew who would be willing to help me decipher the contents when my eye fell upon the sheet of paper Odile had torn from her notebook. Written above Levin's address was an entry for Odile LaRoche, complete with address and phone number. I figured it was worth a try. I still had nine good toes at my disposal. I jogged across the street to Lafayette Park to look for a payphone, and for once my search was rewarded with a functioning machine. Mind you, I had to chip bubblegum out of the coin slot, and the broken pieces of the receiver were barely connected by a slimy red wire with half the insulation missing. Odile answered on the first ring, and then promptly hung up at the mention of my name. I managed to squeeze in a succinct explanation of my request on the second attempt, and after a long pause that almost convinced me she'd set the phone down and walked away, she relented and agreed to review the materials, if only to get back at that sick little weenie puller. I drove over to her apartment in the Bernal Heights neighborhood, dropped the file, tapes, and my card on her doorstep, rang the bell, and slipped away before she answered. I didn't relish the idea of more FaceTime with her, and needed to get a move on if I wanted to see Carolyn at the hospital before visiting hours were over. Ellen had told me that she had taken Carolyn to Washington Hospital in the neighboring town of Fremont. 
running the galaxy hard on the six of eight cylinders that still had compression. I covered the 40-some miles across the Bay Bridge to the hospital's location in the northern part of town in about 50 minutes. It was 8.15 when I arrived. The lights in the visitor's lot were burned out or broken, making the area in front of the entrance unusually dark. The nearly deserted reception area and the eerie fluorescent glow that came through the windows as I approached put me in mind of Hopper's famous painting of a New York diner, Nighthawks. In place of the busboy in the painting was a middle-aged woman wearing a white uniform. Her hair was black and cut in a short Cleopatra style, and she had a lot of dark makeup around her eyes. She tracked me as I came up to the reception desk, the way a bored feline tracks a mouse. I told her I wanted to visit Carolyn Stockwell. Visiting hours are 11 a.m. to 8 p.m., she said. I started to protest, but she rode right over me. However, in special cases, those hours may be extended. Is yours a special case? She seemed to have every expectation that it was, because she was already reaching for an adhesive name badge from a box on her desk. Applying the full power of the native Reardon intellect, I lied. Yes, it is a special case. I'm her uncle, and I've just flown in from out of state to see her. Name? August Reardon. She wrote that in block caps on the badge, peeled off the backing, and handed it to me. Put that on and go up to the nurse's station on floor. She typed something rapidly on the computer on her desk. Six. Check in there, and they will let you know if Ms. Stockwell can see visitors. Does that mean she's out of the ICU? The receptionist smiled reflexively. We call it the critical care unit now. But that's right. She's been moved to a regular ward. I thanked her received a blank thousand-mile stare in return, and walked towards the elevators. On my way, I passed a refrigerator with glass doors containing fresh-cut flowers. There was a metal box for honor system payments on top. I selected a bouquet of carnations and stuffed my $10 in the box. I figured it would help my story if the nurses on the sixth floor were a tougher screen. The sixth floor was almost as quiet and deserted as the receiving area had been. A guy wearing a paper hat was pushing a towering cart of hospital trays full of uneaten servings of lime jello and tapioca pudding, and he directed me to the nurse's station. The nurse on duty there had a lot more enthusiasm than the woman downstairs. She also had chewing gum, breasts that could only come from a request to the plastic surgeon to supersize her order, and nails the size, shape, and color of chili cheese-flavored Fritos. How can we help you tonight, Mr. Uh, Reardon? she said warmly, with more than a trace of Texas. I'm here to see Carolyn Stockwell. Well, as I'm sure they told you downstairs, this is outside of normal visiting hours. But I think Carolyn is still awake. Do you have a special reason to see her tonight? I'm her uncle, I said. Then feeling this was somehow insufficient, added, and her godfather. The nurse smiled. And you've brought an arrangement of flowers from the downstairs stand. She reached across the counter with her orange Frito claw to reshuffle the carnations in their vase. She sighed when she was finished and brought her hand up to her mouth like she was going to share her confidence. Next time, I'd go for the gladiolas. Nobody likes carnations. They're for floats and funerals. Uh, thanks for the tip, I said. Come on, then. I'll take you to Carolyn's room. We went back towards the elevators, turned left in an adjoining corridor, and stopped in front of room 624. The nurse tapped lightly on the door, then opened it without waiting for a response. Carolyn, she said brightly, your godfather is here. 
I grimaced at the mention of godfathers, but stepped gamely into the room, holding the now discredited carnations discreetly at my side. Dark eyes framed in a mess of purple hair glared at me from the bed. Pale, sardonic lips moved to form words that I was certain would be, I've never seen this guy in my life. But what came out instead was a dispirited, Oh, goody. The nurse nodded, as if that was a prescribed response, and moved to leave the room. I'll let you two visit now, but don't stay too long, Mr. Reardon. Carolyn needs her rest. I waited until the door closed behind her, and then placed the vase of flowers on a table along the wall. Another, larger arrangement, with no connection to floats or funerals, was already there. I stood a little uncomfortably by the foot of the bed, and looked at the occupant. Her face, like her lips, was pale. The paleness accentuated her cheekbones, making the resemblance to her mother even more pronounced. She had a cuff of thick bandages around her left wrist and an IV going into her right hand. She was wearing a paisley blue and white hospital gown, but was tucked so far into the covers that they nearly came up to her chin. I said, Thanks for letting me get away with the godfather business back there. She shrugged microscopically. My mother said that you were coming. A beat went by. So are you doing her, or what? That one hit a little too close to home. I struggled to hold my face in a neutral expression. Where'd you get that idea? All she talks about is you. The last time I saw her so obsessed was with Julio Iglesias. She used to keep a People magazine with pictures of him in her bedstand drawer, right next to her vibrator. I don't need to know that. Sure you do. At least you know she's not frigid. In the off chance you haven't nailed her yet. But then... You're no Julio Iglesias. Praise be to Allah for that. But she can't have told you that much about me. From what I understand, you've only had a few hours with her since you've, um, returned. Carolyn smirked and pushed a strand of hair off her cheek. She moved very slowly, as if she was very tired or very drugged. My guess was both. That's right. And all she could do was drone on about this private eye she hired and how you and my old man got into a fight, and how you had found out about my website. That doesn't sound like it was about me. That sounds like she was expressing concern about you and the effort it took to find you. Most people go through their whole lives without ever once having to hire an investigator. Yeah, and she didn't need to do it either. I came back on my own power, and as far as I can tell, you didn't have a fucking clue as to where I was. I undid the button of my collar and loosened the knot of my tie suddenly feeling very tired myself. Could be, but I know where you weren't, on a cross-country car trip. My guess is you were with someone, someone you trusted, and they abused that trust. You might have been on a trip, but I'm betting you were in the Bay Area the whole time. She smirked at me again. You sound like a newspaper horoscope or a bad palm reader. You don't know Diddley, and you're trying to bluff me with a bullshit scenario that would fit a million situations. Hell, if my car broke down and I was ripped off by a bad auto mechanic, it would still fit your story. All right, let's get specific. I know about Skinner's pigeon. He must have made an inappropriate advance or... She barked a derisive laugh. What would have been an appropriate one? I would never let him get within six feet of my precious alabaster flesh. Sure, I knew he was visiting the website and sending me gifts. And I did everything I could to steam him up during our sessions but there's no way I would fall under his sway. She raised her arms and waggled her fingers threateningly like a villain in a silent movie. I was more than a little relieved not to have misread the situation with Levin. 
Why make such a mystery of it then, I said. Why don't you just tell everybody what really happened? I did. I went for a cross-country trip with a friend. And came home and promptly sliced open your wrist. You ought to be more sensitive to my situation. I'm on a suicide watch here. You want me to ring for the nurse and tell her you're causing me mental trauma? You're causing everyone who cares for you trauma by the truckload. I think you're shielding someone. Is it needy? He was almost certainly visiting your website. And two of his disciples tore my apartment apart looking for something. Or how about Wesson? Those aren't exactly studio portraits down at the MoMA. He may also be a stalker from the website. He definitely knows about it. That got a rise out of her. She thrust herself further out of the covers, wincing as she put weight on her damaged wrist. You really are a shit-stirrer, aren't you? She glowered at me while hugging her wrist to her body. Shit-stirrer pretty much sums up the job description for a private investigator. You didn't answer my question, though. I didn't answer it because it's crazy, she said, but there was thought behind her voice. I haven't seen the guru or been to the ashram in months, and Wesson isn't like that. Besides, he's... He's what? He's a teacher at the school. I didn't think that that was what she intended to say. I nodded, but didn't respond. She picked at the tape that secured the IV to her wrist. Then a funny thing happened. Tears welled at the corner of her eyes. When I didn't say anything, she beat on the covers with her fist. What do you want from me? I want a chance to help, but until you tell me what happened, and who made it happen, I can't do anything. Don't flatter yourself, Reardon. You couldn't do anything if you did know. Her voice quivered as she said this last bit. I moved a little closer to the bed, hoping she was finally going to open up. Why don't you try me? Her movements became jerky. She wiped at her eyes with the back of her hand and then reached across her body to grab the bed covers. Okay, okay, I'll try you. She swept the covers off, revealing her torso wrapped in the paisley gown. Wait, I bleated, don't. She ignored me, twitching the hand up to her shoulder where she yanked at the cloth. The knots and back tore came undone, and soon she was naked to her waist. She squirmed and kicked, and the gown ended up in a wad at the bottom of the bed. Tears streamed down her face as she pressed both hands to her side, just below her breasts, like she was framing a piece of art. Her chest heaved. What about this, Reardon? How are you going to help with this? The this was a savage-looking tattoo of a Komodo dragon that covered her entire torso. The thick tail wrapped around her mons pubis. The scaly body followed a line across her stomach and chest, with each of the foreclaws seeming to seize a breast. The ugly, blunt head with its speckled snout nestled near her throat, and the slimy pink tongue flicked out to ensnare an iridescent butterfly that floated along her shoulder. The butterfly looked identical to the one I'd seen on the dead girl in the alley. The compelling depravity of the image, which was tattooed in deep, vibrant colors, and seemingly executed with a high degree of skill, managed to simultaneously repulse and allure. But that was from the perspective of the viewer. From the perspective of the human canvas, it was a horrific thing to have permanently etched on your body. The scar from a third-degree burn would have been infinitely preferable. I stood and stared and could not think of a single comforting or helpful thing to say. It was inevitable, somehow, that the nurse chose that precise moment to return to the room. I don't know if she heard the hysteria in Carolyn's voice or simply decided that visiting time was over. Oh my God, she said hoarsely. What are you doing? I turned to gape at her, 
She looked back at Carolyn and then glared at me and launched a right-hand claw that seemed to come from miles and miles away. I watched it come, and I knew that I could easily block it or duck out of the way. But I couldn't. It hit me square in the face. My partial upper flew out of my mouth and went skittering to the far corner of the room. The nurse shrieked and cringed from the gap-toothed monster in front of her. Get out of here, she screamed. She ran to the nightstand on the near side of the bed and picked up the phone. I'm calling security. I felt like a humiliated teenager. Blood rushed to my cheeks and made the places where her nails hit me throb all the more. I managed an inarticulate grunt and stepped over to the corner to pick up the plate. I didn't attempt to put it back in. I'm leaving now, I said with as much dignity as I could muster, but you're wrong about what happened. I speared the edge of the covers as I went by and yanked them over Carolyn, who looked up at me with a savage expression of someone who has lost so much that they can only take comfort in the humbling of others. That's right, she yelled at my back. Get the fuck out of here and go back and tell my mother what a damaged piece of goods her daughter is. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>